Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Stevens Creek Church. We're so glad that you're here today. So I'd like to welcome all those in our Grovetown campus, those in our South campus, those watching online, on demand. Uh, man, what a beautiful day to be in church. You know, I like to start with something funny. And, and last night, Patty was talking, and she said, okay, about the funny section. So what are you going to do tomorrow, which today, uh, that compares to what you did last week? I said, Patty, there's no way I can compare to, you know, sucking off the chocolate. And um, that was one of those rare ones, you know, about once a year type ones. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about that. I, a friend of mine, Ed Hauser, Ed, if you're watching, you gave me this 40 years ago, told me that joke. I held on to it a long time. It was... Anyway, so I don't have one today that uh, compares to that. But did you hear about this family? Uh, their, their little kitten died, and they were concerned about that. So they took the little, their little girl and going to set her down on the sofa and to kind of walk with her through this. And, and the mom sat her down, put her arm around her head and said, Honey, said, uh, Fluffy is with God in heaven. And the little girl looked up and says, Mom says, Why in the world would God want a dead cat? <laughs> I tell you, I, I told that sometimes they're funny to you and they're not funny to me, but otherwise it's just funny to me. And so I, told, I went in the living room last night and told Patty that. And I said, I just started laughing even before I told her I had to hold up. Uh, my, had, couldn't even look at her in the face. Why would God want a dead cat? I don't know. <laughs> Nothing to do with the sermon today, Grove Town, okay? Just stay with me. Today we're starting a brand new series called How to Read the Bible. You know when we pick up a Bible, it's, it means a lot of different things to different people. Some people look at this book as a book of history. Some people look at it as, as a book of prophecy. Maybe others look at it as a book of morals and ethics or maybe a book that brings encouragement and hope. I say it does that and all of those things together. But what I know through the years is that this is a book that has inspired me and I want uh, to teach this series as a way to maybe inspire you to read the Bible. Uh, just pick it up. I know when we look at the Bible, oftentimes, for many of us, it is a book that intimidates us. And I just want to remove that intimidation factor. And, and over the next several weeks, we're going to just go through section by section. We're just going to try to lay a foundation to understand uh, how it can improve and make your life better. So, very uh, 101, this is the Bible. It has two sections. It has an Old Testament section and has a New Testament section. We turn to the very uh, first book of the Bible, the Old Testament section. It starts in Genesis 1. It starts with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, we go to the New Testament, the very first uh, verse it begins with Jesus. The Old Testament begins with God. The New Testament begins with Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. It says, uh, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so that's, just start off with that. The Old Testament has five sections in it, uh, which covers 39 books. The New Testament has four sections, which cover 27 books. 
So you can sum up the Bible in three statements, okay? You can sum up the Bible in three statements. The Old Testament, we see from Adam to Abraham, this is the history of the human race. From Adam to Abraham, it's the history of the human race. From Abraham to Jesus Christ, it's the history of the Jewish race. And then from Jesus Christ on to where we are now, that's the history of the church. So now you know the whole Bible. I guess we can be dismissed and go. Well, it's a little bit more than that, but that's just something um, for you to understand. It is not complicated when we dive into it and understand that God has a plan to teach us his word. So the Bible will help your life, but it will not help your life unless you read it. So once again, let's pick up the Bible. This series is based on a a verse of scripture from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. You're going to hear this verse every week during this series. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that You, every servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so when we think about that, all Scripture is God-breathed. That simply means that God inspired this Word. He inspired this book. It's God-breathed. It is God's Word to us. It does four things. It says, first of all, teaching. Teaching is when God shows you and me the path and that we're to walk on. We're saying, God, show me your will. Give me a path. And, and we understand in Psalm 119, it says, Your word is a lamp and for my feet, and it is a light for my path. So God's word becomes like a light. When you are leaving this place and embracing uh, your world this coming week, God's word can be that light that will help dispel the darkness. It'll help show you the path that you are to walk on. So it's good for teaching. Secondly, it's good for rebuking. This is when maybe you started out on that path and for whatever reason you've slipped, you've fallen, you've got off the path. This is when God's word comes to bring conviction to us. It comes to reprimand. It comes to warn us. Be careful now. Don't, don't continue. Don't do that. Then it's correcting. This is how you get up. This is how you get back on the path, the right path. Correction is that ability to restore you to where you need to be. You've fallen off the wagon. uh, The word helps you to be restored to that place you need to be. And finally, training. That's how you stay in the saddle. That's how you stay on the path. You, You train for righteousness. You don't fall off into the ditch again. So, Let's read it again. All, <clears throat> all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that you, so that every servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to know more about the Bible, I want to encourage you to be a part of a small group. Today is in our lobby at all of our campuses. You have an opportunity to connect with a small group to get to know a few new friends, uh, and I really feel like it can be life-changing for you. 
So when we approach a subject like the Bible and how to read the Bible, I understand that we're all from different places. There are some of you that have been raised learning the Scriptures and others of you that the Bible is something very new. And then there's another group of people that you're here investigating Christianity. I mean, you're trying to figure out this God and Jesus and Christmas and Easter and church and Bible. You're trying to figure out all of that. Now, if that's you, I just want to encourage you to come back next week. Just come back and let's work through this together. But I also understand that many folks struggle with the validity of this book. They feel like it's a good book. In fact, that's what their parents call it. There's the good book. But is it anything more than that? Can I really trust the Bible? So over the next few minutes, I want to answer that question. Can I trust the Bible? In fact, I'll give you seven statements very quickly that will help you uh, understand and hopefully help you trust that this is not just a history book, but it is God's Word for you. You can trust the Bible because the Bible is historically accurate. I believe that you can trust the Bible because the Bible is historically accurate. The people that you read about in the Bible are real people. The places that you read about in the Bible are real places. Now, oftentimes when you hear news or you hear a story, you want to know this question. Were there any eyewitness accounts? Any eyewitnesses there? And I'll say yes. The story of the Bible is told through eyewitness accounts. Moses was there when the Red Sea was split. Joshua was there when the walls of Jericho fell. The disciples were in the upper room when they saw for themselves the resurrected Jesus appear in their midst. And then they wrote about it so that other people would know it. So yes, there are eyewitness accounts. But you say, Marty, that was a long time ago. And how do we know that the texts that they wrote down are accurate? I mean, don't you think it would change through the years? Well, here's what I do know. That they copied those texts down and those books down with extreme care. With extreme care. And... and they had a group of people that were designed and that were hired to do that, and they were called the scribes. When the scribes copied the scriptures, they had a long list of rules that they had to follow to make sure this, uh, uh, the writings were exact so that they could pass it down to the next generation. For instance, these scribes understood and they knew how many columns were on a page. They knew the length of the page. These scrolls that they were written on always had 30, were 30 letters wide so that they could check it out to make sure they're always right. They didn't count word by word, but they counted letter by letter. They were so meticulous with their, um, their writings that they had several tests to make sure that it was right when they copied it. Here's an example of that. They had the letters of the alphabet in each book, and they were so exact, they knew the middle letter of the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch. They actually knew the middle letter of the Old Testament. You say, well, what's, why? What's the big deal about that? Here's why. 
to go check to see if they were accurate, they would go to that middle letter and they would count from, um, from the middle letter back to the front and then from the middle letter to the back. And if it were one character off, they would destroy that scroll and they would start over again. This is how meticulous they were because they wanted to accurately uh, write out God's word so that the generations after them would have it for, um, uh, for their own learnings. Now, this attention to detail came to light in November 1946. It came to light in November 1946 when the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were discovered in a series of caves on the, in the West Bank section of the country of Israel. Now, Patty and I visited Qumran a, a few years ago, and here's a picture where they found the scrolls. Now, these scrolls were significant because the scrolls they found, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were dated 100 years B.C., 100 years before Christ. They had all of the Old Testament books on these Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946, except the book of Esther. Now, prior to the scrolls, the earliest copies of the scriptures were dated 900 A.D. So here's the point. With the Dead Sea Scrolls, you see like a thousand-year span of these scrolls. When they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls with what they had, there was only a 5% difference, and that was mainly the spelling of the words or the spelling of names. So over a 1,000 years, these copyists, these scribes, were proved to be right, and it helps to confirm the historical accuracy of the Bible. Not only that, when you think about archaeology, you will see that the places in the Bible are real. They're not fiction. You can go to these places. Many of these places have been dug up. That same trip, Patty and I were able to walk the streets of old Jerusalem, and you can see the stories of the Bible come to life because you're standing in the very place of where it was written and where it, it came to pass. You can go to Jerusalem. You can, you can visit Armageddon where the last and final battle will be fought. You can see the Pool of Siloam, where people were healed. You, these are real places, and all of these places point to the accuracy, the historical accuracy of the Bible. Here's a second one. I believe you can trust the Bible because the Bible is scientifically accurate. Now, God set up the laws of science, and he made sure that his laws did not or does not contradict the laws of science. In fact, over and over in history, we see how science has to catch up to the Bible. Science has to catch up to the Bible. Having said that, um, please understand that the Bible was not given to be a scientific textbook. You can't study the Bible and figure out how to build a rocket, okay? The Bible is not a scientific textbook. The Bible doesn't use scientific language. However, the Bible never gives bad science. It's not a scientific textbook, but it doesn't give bad science. Truth never changes, and science is constantly changing. Okay, 
lean in and listen to some illustrations that would say that for years, thousands of years, thousands of years, the theory was the earth was flat. In fact, there's some folks today who have this flat earth theory, but for thousands of years, people believe that until Copernicus, until uh, Galileo and Columbus um, realized the world was not flat, but the world was round. Okay? Think about it this way. There's not a single verse in the Bible that says the earth was flat, even though the Bible was written during the time when people actually thought the world was flat. But if they were looking at the details of Scripture, they would realize that the earth was round because in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, he said, He sits on the enthroned above the circle of the earth. For thousands of years, people believed that the earth had to be held up by something. The Greeks said, oh, it was Atlas. Atlas held the earth up. The Hindus said, no, no, the earth is held up on the back of elephants. And then the uh, Egyptians came and said, no, the, the earth is, sits on five pillars. But that's not. That was the common thought of the scientists of that day. But if you go to the oldest writing known to man, which is probably the book of Job. Now, the Bible is not written in a chronological order in the Old Testament. Job's the oldest. And what does Job say? In Job chapter 26, he said, He spreads out the northern skies over empty space, and he suspends the earth over nothing. How does Job know that? In those days, everybody thought the earth was flat, but it's not. The Bible always tells the truth. For instance, it was an accepted science 100 years B.C. that there was a finite number of stars. In, in fact, Hipparchus comes on the scene. He said, I counted them. There are 850 stars. He said that in 150 B.C. But then Ptolemy comes and said, no, no, I recounted, and that was wrong. There's actually 1,025 stars. But now we know because science has caught up to the Bible. Because Jeremiah said, as countless as the stars in the skies and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Uh, uh, Jeremiah said, it is infinite, the number of stars that we have. I could go on and on in many different areas. But let's just, let's talk about the medical Area. Now, I am no medical practitioner here. We've got a congregation full of those of you that work in the medical field. But let's just talk about advances in medicine through the years. You know, for many years, people believed that too much blood in your body made you sick. And so for many years, thousands of years, people had the practice called bloodletting, where they would allow blood to flow out of your body, thinking that you, the sickness is going to leave your body. In fact, some people believe that George Washington died uh, as a result of bloodletting because that practice was still going on uh, during the Revolution. And so um, doctors would let blood out. But today, we don't do that anymore. Today, when somebody is sick, what do we do? We give blood to them. We give them blood. Well, the Bible teaches us that, that life, 
that, um, that the life source, our life source is in the blood. We see this in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. It says the life of every creature is in the blood. During the Middle Ages, there's the bubonic plague and there, is, there was the black plague. And over 200 million people died in those plagues. How do I know that? Because I simply asked Alexa this morning. <laughs> Alexa, how many people died in the bubonic plague? 25 million. How many people died in the, in the black plague? From 75 to 200 million. So let's say 200 million. And all of those that are listening right now, I just said the word Alexa. And right now, all across the homes, you're talking. What else do we know? That in those days, the reason so many people died is because science at that point did not understand the transmission of germs. But do you know, if you go back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus in chapter 13, it said, put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. The Bible is uh, so much further ahead of science. I could go on and on. I just want to say, I'm not a scientist, but I can say by reading these examples that the Bible is scientifically accurate. It is not a science textbook. You can't build a rocket with the, the Bible, but I'll tell you that the Bible always tells the truth, and it's not, and that is what we stand on. Here's the third thing. You can trust it. You can trust the Bible because the Bible is prophetically accurate. It's prophetically accurate. The predictions in the Bible will come true and have come true. The Bible is filled with thousands of prophecies <clears throat> that God says, this is going to happen at such and such a time in such and such a way. In fact, there are 300 prophecies in the Bible about Jesus becoming the Messiah, being the Messiah, even a thousand years before he was born. I mean, Isaiah said, that for unto us a child is born, and the government will be upon his, his shoulders. But right in chapter 7, it says, and a virgin will conceive. That's a thousand years before Jesus was, was born. What else? We see in the book of Micah that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. And what happened? He was born in Bethlehem. Over and over, we see the prophecies in the Old Testament. Do you realize that a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, King David, in one of his Psalms, describes Jesus' death by crucifixion? Now, he didn't know the word crucifixion, but he described it. A thousand years before the Roman government started using this method of uh, death. How do we know that? Only God could have told him that. Now, what are the odds? What are the odds of 300 predictions about you coming true? Think about that. That's a lot. 300 different times. The odds are so astronomical that you couldn't even write the number down. It takes more faith to believe that it's just a coincidence than to believe that God planned it all. You can trust the Bible. Here's the fourth one, because the Bible is thematically unified. Now, stay with me here. It has one theme from Genesis to Revelation. It is the theme of redemption. It is the theme of Jesus 
That's our focus. So what's the big deal about being thematically unified? The Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors on three different continents and three different languages, and they didn't know each other, yet they have the same story. I mean, if there's one thing, it'd be one thing if a single person wrote it. I mean, the Quran, Muhammad wrote that. And so you can see how that book would be unified because one person wrote it. Thanos of uh, Confucius, one person wrote that. The writings of Buddha, one person wrote that. So just think about that. When you think about the Bible, it was written over a 1,600-year period by 40 different people. They're different people. It was written by poets and prophets. It was written by princes and kings. It was written uh, by, by sailors and soldiers. It was written by attorneys and a doctor. It was written by prisoners and common people. It was written in all different kinds of lo locations. Some of the books were written in a cave. Others were written in homes. Some of the books were written on ships. Some were written in palaces and prisons. And all of it has the same focus. It was redemption. From cover to cover, you can trust the Bible. Here's the fifth one. You can trust the Bible because it is confirmed by Jesus. Jesus trusted the Scriptures. He trusted the Bible. You may have heard somebody say, well, I trust Jesus, but I'm not so sure about those other guys. Jesus trusted the Bible. When he talked, he talked about the prophets he talked about Daniel. Jesus believed the story of Noah and everything that happened with the flood. Jesus believed uh, the story about Adam and Eve. Jesus believed the tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he talked about it. He believed in Jonah and what happened there. Some people say, oh, it's a bunch of fables. They're just stories, just good moral stories maybe. But Jesus believed the stories of the Old Testament and in fact, he proclaimed that the Bible was unique above any other book. Listen to his words. He said, for, for truly, I tell you, Matthew chapter 5, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus looked at the Bible and said, it's all going to happen. He believed every sentence. And you can trust him. I said there are seven statements that we're going to make. Here's number six. You can trust the Bible because the Bible has survived all attacks. The Bible has survived all attacks. The Bible is the most despised, the most derided, the most denied, the most disputed, the most dissected, most debated, outlawed, most destroyed, banned book of all history. Yet we still have it. Millions of people have died because they refused to give up the Bible. The fall of 2020, North Korea. Several people were executed because of that. 2013, North Korea, people were executed, made the news about because they wouldn't, 80 of them would not give up their Bible. 
It's been attacked over and over and over, yet it is the most read book in all of the world. It is the best-selling book in all of the world. It is still making a difference in people's lives. It is the greatest source for music. It is the greatest source for art. It is the, the greatest source for architecture. I mean, just the art and architecture is just amazing. A few months ago, Patty and I went to Rome um, for our anniversary trip, and there we saw all of the art. We saw all of the statues and all of the, the buildings that were built in the name of Christ. We've gathered here today, and we're speaking English because of the King James Version of the Bible. I believe that the King James Version of the Bible is the reason why English has spread as a language across the world. If it were not for the Bible, you may not be speaking the language that you're speaking. Jesus said this way in Matthew 24, heaven and earth is going to pass away. But my words will never pass away. The only thing that's going to last is God's word. Heaven and earth is going to pass away. You know, you hear a lot of stuff about global warming and climate change and, and all of that kind of stuff. Let me say this. You can do all that you want to do to try to stop that from happening, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. This world, there's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth. We need to do everything that we can to take care and to steward the resources that we have been given. But we should never worship the earth because the earth was made by God. We worship the creator, God, and we put our hope and we put our trust in him. I've been wanting to say that for a long time. Man, it, it just gets me that it's like all of this mother earth worship, which is only of the devil, trying to steal God's glory. And so when you see that plastered over your new screen, you can say, there's the devil at work. There's the devil at work trying to get people to bow down and worship the created things instead of the creator. We've got to be good stewards. We've got to be good stewards. We've got to take care of what we've been entrusted to. But we never look at that as the ultimate goal. Jesus is the ultimate goal. And let me move on. You can trust the Bible. Here's the seventh and final point. Because the Bible has transforming power. It's transforming power. Nothing can change the people's lives like God's Word. I'm telling you, I've seen God's Word spoken and situations change. Just speak. Speak God's Word over there are stories all over this auditorium. There are stories in our South Campus, in our Grovetown Campus, of people whose lives have been changed as they read the Word, as they read the Bible, as they embraced God's Word. Been changed. Jesus said to the Jews who believed Him, Jesus said, if you hold on to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free free. I want you to be free. I want you to be free. And so many people in our culture have taken this verse and they plastered it over universities. They've ch chiseled it into monuments. The truth will set you free. But you can't just carve out a part of the scripture. You've got to look at the whole verse there. 
If you hold on to my teachings, if you hold on to my word, you are my disciples. If you hold on to my word, then you will know truth. And what? Truth will make you free. It's the truth of God's word that brings freedom. And God is here to set you free. And this book says you can be changed. This book says your life is not an accident. That you have a purpose. When I read this book, here's what I understand. That God made you to love you. He just wants you to love him back. When I read this book, I see that we can be forgiven that all of us have made mistakes. All of us have sinned. But we can be forgiven of our slates can be washed clean and we can be free of the guilt and the shame that we carry. That's what I find in this book. This book says that you can have a home in heaven. That this earth is truly passing away and, and that we are on this journey and this is not our home. But we're looking forward to a home in heaven. This is God's word for you. God's word is this, that no matter what you're going through, no matter what problems you may be facing, that God can use those situations and those problems, and he can turn it around and bring something good out of it. This book tells me there's hope. And hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. He is the word of God. That's the message of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God talking about Jesus. And so today, we have this opportunity here. We have this opportunity to receive God's word in our lives. And when you receive God's word, when you receive Jesus, your life will be changed. I realize that we've come from all different parts of this community we're at different places in our spiritual journey. But here's what I know is that you and I, we need Jesus. We need him in our lives. And some of you are here investigating that. You're investigating Christianity. You're trying to figure out if this is true and all. And I want you to keep searching. And I want you to come back next week. I want you to bring a friend next week with you. But there's another group here that you've heard this message, and maybe you've gone through several messages, and you're at this place where you're ready to take that step, that you're ready that, to say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, heal me. Jesus, guide me. I'm the one that, that needs help today. Would you help me today? It, it, you know, having that kind of an honest type of prayer, it doesn't have to be a fancy prayer. It just comes from the heart. And maybe that's you today. You're ready. And in a few minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, there's a, another group that you've, come. And when I said that word, help me, and you said, oh man, that's my prayer. I'm just so burdened down with a situation or a circumstance. I need help. 
Well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray over you today. Those in Grovetown and South, let all of us, let's stand together in the presence of the Lord. I want you to be open to receive this prayer, regardless of where you are in in your life. I just want you to be open. And just as I pray over you, that maybe you say this, God, just speak to me. Maybe that's your prayer. God, speak to me. And then be very attentive to his promptings. Are you ready to pray? Let's bow our heads. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray over this congregation. I pray, Father, that you would move in our midst and that you would touch people right where they are. God, there's a group of people here that are ready to take that spiritual step, that, that are ready to make things right with you, that are they're longing for their lives to be different, for their lives to be changed. And Lord, as they pray this prayer, as I lead them, God, I ask that you would do as only you can do. So if that's you, say, Jesus, help me. Say that. Say, Jesus, help me. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and be my leader and be my Lord. Pray this prayer. Say, Jesus, make me into the kind of person that you want me to be. I give you my past and I trust you with my future. Save me today. Save me today. And Father, I pray not only for that group of people, but I pray for those that have just come in today and it's like it was hard for them even to lift up their their head because they're so burdened. They have this weight on their shoulders and they're doing everything humanly possible to try to bear the weight and bear the brunt of this difficulty. But God, they need a power that's greater than themselves. They need your power. So come, Lord, and I ask that you would lighten the load. I ask, God, that you would relieve the burden. I ask, God, that you'd give them help. In Jesus' name, God, come. And, Lord, bring healing and bring life and bring hope. I want you to pray this. Say, Jesus, I receive. Say that. Say, I receive what you have for me. Say that. Say, Jesus, I I receive what you have for me. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. One thing before you go. Now, I realize that uh, some of you are hearing this about the Bible. Maybe you've never picked up a Bible. Maybe you don't even own a Bible. There's a couple of different options for you. You can go by the information uh, center out there and... Uh, there's a free Bible for you. You can pick it up and you can take it home and start reading this week. You can do like me. I started the year off reading the New Testament. So why don't, maybe that's a good place for you to start the story of Jesus as you're leading up to um, Easter. Now, there's also, you can go to our website, stephenscreekchurch.com. At the bottom of the website, there's a link for the one-year Bible. And uh, every day you'll have various uh, chapters read to you, uh, that you can read. Or how about this? Click on the um, Uh, the volume, and it will read it to you, which is awesome. And so uh, just do that. Um, I appreciate this. Uh, Also, don't forget small groups are out in the atrium. Hope you have a wonderful week. We're going to continue this next week. Be blessed. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to StevensCreekChurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.